Okay, let's um, take our Bibles and go to Psalm 132. Psalm 132. Would you stand and read it with me aloud together? Psalm 132, it's page 519 if you have the church Bible. Or, sorry, it's, it's on the screen. Read it aloud with me, please. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house, I will go into my bed, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might, that your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath, from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. But on him, his crown will shine. Amen. Let's be seated. This is a part of a series of psalms known as the Psalms of Ascent. These psalms were sung as... I suppose we sing songs, varying occasions. You don't really have to have a reason for a song to come into your head, do you? You, you sometimes find yourself maybe singing a, a song at um, a time that you think, well, where did that come from? Why, why that song as well? Maybe you heard it playing in a shop earlier in the day and you, you start humming along something and, and maybe it's not even a great song and you, you think, oh, no, I, sh- I, sh- I shouldn't be humming along to that. Uh, With the Psalms, these Psalms would have been prepared for set purposes, for set reasons. But I guarantee you they would have been sung at all manner of occasions. With reason, without any set stated reason. The Psalms of Ascent, some say, would um, have been sung by the priests as they were ascending the steps of the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Others say the Psalms were favored by pilgrims who were traveling to the holy city to make sacrifice or to observe a festival or feast. Still others will say that actually uh, that they were primarily used by returning exiles coming back from Babylon. Indeed, there is reference in one of the Psalms of Ascent to Babylon. And there's reference to the period of exile and the sorrow and sadness. And so these psalms would have been sung and compiled as psalms of ascent around that time. I don't 
see any reason why we have to narrow it down or isolate it to one over any other. I think they probably were sung in all of those occasions, on all of those occasions, by all sorts of different people in God's covenant community. But this particular psalm harkens back to some incidents that were in the time of David. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor. It's not a psalm of David. It's looking back at David. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. This speaks to a hope that David had, and we'll come to the precise hope that he had in this moment, that he himself was... Uh, forced really to leave unfulfilled for a time. A hope that mankind has had throughout the ages. A hope that God would be with us. That God would be with us, His people. That hope is rooted in creation. In order to understand God with us, you have to go right back to the very beginning. And you read in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the story, it's told twice from slightly different angles. You read how God, in the course of six days, created the heavens and the earth, including mankind. He created uh, a mature earth. He created an earth that cannot be calculated to any point of infancy. He created man and woman. They were mature. They were of an assumed adulthood age. You know, there, there, there's not, it's not that God dumped an infant or two in the middle of this random garden. No, they were of, of age. God created the heavens and the earth in six days, and on the seventh, He rested. And this day was called the Sabbath day. He gave the first man, Adam, and the first woman, Eve, a particular responsibility. He placed them in a set location. Does anyone remember what that place was called? Eden. This paradisical-like place had, as there was no sin in mankind at that point, uh, only good. There was... A command that God had given, a command that the man and the woman should not eat of one tree in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but of any other tree in the garden, of anything else that was growing, they, they could eat. They were free. They were happy. They were whole. They were made in God's image. And they were living according to that. Now, it doesn't mean that they had the body of God. It doesn't mean that they um, you, you looked at them and said, or that they look like God in a physical sense, because, of course, God is spirit. Yet at the same time, God has chosen to make us as we are with the bodies that we have, with the brains that we have, with our, our abilities and um, sources, resources of intellect, intelligence. He created us with our emotional makeups. He created us with, um, with prospects. He created us with potential. He created us with character and matters of conscience. He created us with 
a sense of integrity. He created us to reflect His character, His righteousness, His justice, His goodness, His creativity. To some degree, His power, because He gave man and woman dominion over everything on this earth. We were representatives of God in this creation. So in seven days, we see God creates and then He rests. Six days of creation, one day of rest. What's particularly special is, contra various other religious beliefs that are out there that view God as a distant, impersonal force, Yahweh, as He has chosen to reveal Himself, the one true God, was personal. Yahweh, God, was with us in Eden. We walked with God. Or rather, He walked with us. Adam and Eve seem to have had a routine. We don't know how long it was that they were in Eden before they sinned against God, but it seems that it was normal for them to have conversations with God. For them to know the very presence of God. For them to be aware that God was with them. God was with us in Eden. But tragically, in Genesis chapter 3, we see that mankind disobeys God's command. And immediately that close relationship of God with us in Eden is severed and destroyed and mankind is thrown out of this paradisical place and begins the process of physical dying, having already spiritually died. Mankind now lives covered by a weight of guilt and shame. Separated, alienated, estranged from God, our Creator, God, the Father of all men. Needing reconciliation, needing and realizing what we had after we lost it, right? God with us. They were sold this lie that they could be like God. Did God actually tell you not that you can't have anything from this garden? That's the lie. Questioning God's goodness, undercutting Him, undermining Him, making um, a, a, a kind of an attempt to make God seem a bit stupid and unfair. Did God really put you here and you can't eat anything? Does God want you to starve? You've seen people do that before in real life, haven't you? People might come alongside you and to another person say something that maybe it might be meant as a bit of banter, but you know it's, it's undercutting you, it's undermining you, it's trying to belittle and demean. Satan does that with God. No, God just wants to keep you from a good thing. And so he's, um, he gives the, the clickbait there. Here, you take this, look at it. It looks good, doesn't it? It's good for the eyes, and it's good to taste as well. But what's better, come over here, have some of this. It will make you wise. I guarantee you today, if you had a supplement, if you packaged just a few herbs maybe in a capsule or something and said that this will help your intelligence and you marketed it as a, a health supplement, you'd have people buying it. 
And you'd have people probably reporting effects. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, I think it makes me definitely feel like I'm thinking a bit sharper. So Satan sells us this lie. God was with us in Eden, but throughout Genesis we see the consequences of mankind being estranged from God, going our own way, doing our own thing, falling into mess after mess after mess. The Bible does not try to brush up or hide the flaws of its main characters. I can submit to you um, a few passages. Um, Genesis 38, I remember the first time I read it and I thought, what is this? You can read Genesis 38 and you'll know what I mean. It's just like, this is, this is such a grim story. It's grotesque. And then you, you get to this scenario where um, the, the, these guys who, they're supposed to be the, the founders of the 12 tribes of Israel, and you, you might have heard of them in, in Bible uh, classes or Sunday school or something, and you, you think, yeah, these guys must be really heroic. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing about them. Maybe if you're new to the faith and you want to learn about these guys, you go back and you think, yeah, they, these guys, I'm looking, hold on, what? Like two of them slaughter a whole city? For what? Like it's just a grim story. And then they, they sell their own brother into slavery and lie to their dad saying wild animals tore him apart. These are the good guys. Right? These are supposed to be the, the ones who know God's promises. They're supposed to be blessed by God and they're supposed to be a blessing to others. But actually, you can read a lot of passages and you think, hold on. Yeah, God's blessing them to some degree, but they're also cutting themselves off from certain blessings. And, and what's more, in many cases, they don't really come across as that much of a blessing to others. How they needed God with them. How we need God with us. And the people go into Egypt during a time of famine and God provides. He restores that brother, Joseph, to his family in a miraculous series of events of God's providence. What those brothers meant for evil, Joseph says, God meant for good, for the salvation of many. So the family resides in Egypt, but things happen. They stay in Egypt and they proliferate. God's promise of descendants is well and truly kept. They proliferate in such a way that the Egyptians think, hold on, they're, they're coming over here and they're changing our, our system. They're changing our culture. They're changing what we hold dear. So what should we do? They felt threatened. They enslaved them. They tried to then kill the baby boys. I'm sure they succeeded in killing many. They would have succeeded in killing more had there not been some midwives, some Hebrew midwives who disobeyed the government edict. They disobeyed and said, no, we're going to keep these alive. Pharaoh found out, and you know, who knows what happened to those midwives, but we, we do know that in God's plan and providence, one child, one boy particularly, was saved. His name was Moses. 
Moses would be taken by God and trained and brought up um, out of Pharaoh's household and then as a shepherd and fugitive in the land of Midian to go back and to see deliverance for the Hebrews. And throughout, we read in the Scriptures, I believe it's 1 Corinthians 10, God was with His people in the cloud and in the Red Sea and through all manner of different situations. He was with His people. God was with us in Eden and God was with us in Exodus. But there was a very tangible sense of God's presence with His people that was established and that leads um, up to this Psalm 132 that we read a few moments ago. It it begins to help us make some clearer sense of, of this picture of God with us. God came to be with His people in a particular set structure. Does anyone know the structure, the name of the structure that symbolized God's presence with His people? The tabernacle. In Exodus 25 through 21, one of the things maybe when we read, we we don't always see the parallels. We don't always see how God works. We don't always see the patterns The tabernacle reflects very much the pattern of God in creation, in Eden. There are seven speeches by God, just as there were seven speeches by God in Genesis 1 and 2. Seven speeches that said, let there be, 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 and there was. Six days of creation, one day of rest, where he said, this is a Sabbath. So seven speeches by God that are headed from Exodus 25 through Exodus 31, and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying, 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 and Yahweh spoke to Moses saying. Seven times. I'll leave you to read up on it from Exodus 25 through 31. The seventh and final act of speech, as in when God created the heavens and the earth and then rested, covers the Sabbath. After this, in Exodus 40, we see the completion of the tabernacle is given with seven statements of Moses completing the work that God commanded him. Just as Yahweh commanded Moses. And it came about in the beginning month, in the second year, on the first of the month, the tabernacle was set up. And Moses set up the tabernacle. And repeatedly throughout Exodus 40, we see seven times just as Yahweh commanded Moses. Seven times just as Yahweh commanded Moses. The tabernacle was meant to symbolize God's presence with His people just as it was with His people, just as God was with His people in Eden. It was meant to parallel that creation where God said, let there be, and there was. And then God rested. But we move on from that. You see, the people, they eventually would, after rebellion and 
after finally entering into the promised land and having known God's presence with them in various stages, but also having known God's withdrawal from them at various stages. Through the books of the Judges, you can see time and time again um, the people rebel against God and He withdraws His protecting hand. He withdraws um, His power from among His people. You, you see that in Joshua and in Judges where the people disobey Him. God says, okay, I'm, you don't want me with you. Okay, I'm going to hand you over. My presence is not with you. They would try to use the tabernacle as uh, some sort of um, uh, weaponry almost. You know, where we'll take the tabernacle into battle with us and God will be with us. Giving God only attention when it profited them. But God does not have to be with His people. Especially when they show that they are not acting as His people. And so we come to a situation wherein the ark in the days of the last judge, Samuel, is actually stolen. It's taken away. The ark of the covenant, which was the centerpiece of the tabernacle, that was only meant to be carried in a particular way, that was only meant to be carried by particular people, and the presence of which only a particular person, the high priest, could enter. The Ark of the Covenant is stolen by Philistines. And they touched it, and they didn't die. They went into its presence and they weren't destroyed. They took it away. Now there are some remarkable stories regarding what happened when they took the Ark of the Covenant away. They put it in one of the temples of their gods and um, uh, long story short, their idol began to lose body parts. Right? Right? And it terrified them. It terrified them. So what happened? They put the Ark of the Covenant out. They didn't want it anymore. It was causing grief. There was, there was pestilence. They had taken it, and yes, they were able to be alive, but they, they were riddled with disease. And they realized this, for us, is a curse. Here in Psalm 132, which we read, we read of how David desires to build a house for the Lord to dwell in. What would we call that? A temple, yeah. A temple, a shrine. We'll come to that in a moment. But it says, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jaar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Now, the first mention of Ephrathah um, or Ephrath occurs in Genesis in reference to the place where Rachel died giving birth to Benjamin. You remember Rachel was wife of Jacob. Rachel had great difficulty 
in conceiving, that God gave her conception, and she did give birth, but she, she died giving birth to Benjamin, and she was buried there in Ephrath. Bethlehem was eventually partially given to the northern tribe of Ephraim. And so the, the two, Ephratha, um, Ephraim, the, the, the two had a relationship. Though when we see Bethlehem of Ephratha, which you know our, our Lord was born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem actually had a strong link to a northern tribe of Ephraim, though Bethlehem is in the south. So here, uh, this, this tribe of Ephraim uh, in the north, in an area called Kiriath-Jerim, the city of Ja'ar, is where it is the ark has found its place. The ark had been for a long period of time at Shiloh, not Jerusalem, Shiloh in Ephraim in the north, when it was taken to be present at a battle with the Philistines. Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, evil men, priests, but evil men, were slain in that battle. They, they took the ark thinking, yes, bring it up. Bring up the ark. It's going to wreak havoc on our enemies. God will be with us. But they did not live as though they cared for God. So they're using the Ark of the Covenant like it's some weapon of mass destruction that will give them certain victory. God is not sort of like a cosmic vending machine. He's, he's not like that. Where we just show up and we try to use Him to accomplish our victories. God's not to be that to be toyed with in that way. The sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. 30,000 Israelites lost their lives. The ark was captured. Eli hears of this. He falls back and he dies. This appears to be the event referred to in the words, we heard of it at Ephrathah. We heard of it. We heard the ark has been taken. We heard it's been stolen. It was a grievous report. It was a deadly report. It changed everything. But after some time in the land of the Philistines, it being sent away, as I, I indicated, it came to a place called Beth Shemesh in the tribe of Judah. You can read this story in 1 Samuel 6. It's in the immediate vicinity of this place where we have this Kirjath Jerium, the city of Jaar, to which the ark eventually was removed and where it was found. The Bethshemites were afraid to keep hold of it because they heard of the havoc it caused among the Philistines. And so um, they, they didn't want to violate it. They, they didn't want to do anything or have anything to do with it. And so it was found in the fields of Jaar, in the fields of Kirjath-Jerium. It's eventually brought back. It's brought into Jerusalem. And, and David desires to build a house for the presence of the Lord. God was with us in Eden. He was with us in Exodus. He is with us here. Yes, he was, he was even there in Ephrathah. He was there among the Philistines. He was there in Kirjath-Jerium. He was there working in power. 
David's promise is recorded in 2 Samuel 7. It's an energetic, zealous, determined, tenacious, enduring, but imperfect promise. He wanted to build a temple. He thought, I'm building houses for myself. I'm building palaces for myself. Why should, why should this ark of the Lord dwell in a tent? Although that's what God had prescribed back in Exodus. Why should, why should it continue this way? Well, it was not for David to build the temple. No, we see his son, Solomon, ultimately is the one who builds the temple. You see, David had a promise, but God had a plan. And David's promise was less than God's plan. David's promise was subject to God's providence, ultimately. God's plan reminds us of His presence, involves His people, and contains an enduring promise. If you read that promise that God makes to David there in 2 Samuel 7, you will see this promise of ultimate reign and a forever kingdom for a descendant of David. One is coming who is from David. A descendant of yours is coming who will reign on your throne forever. There will be no end to this kingdom. It will all be peace. We don't always know how God plans things, how He works things out, but we know He has a plan. God ultimately enabled Solomon to build a temple. And so we see God with us enshrined. The temple was built. Guess what the temple was modeled on? Any ideas? Eden. The temple was built, modeled on the garden. You, if you go to Jerusalem today, I have a picture I can, I can show you later of um, looking out over the Temple Mount, there's encased in um, very heavy breakproof glass a menorah, which has um, six branches, I believe. It's not the same menorah as what you see at Hanukkah. Um, it, it has six branches with one in the center. One enduring light that lights the others. Well, what is the menorah? What does it symbolize? Well, it, it actually symbolizes the tree of life. There were two trees in the garden. The tree of knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. One that mankind took of to our detriment. One we did not take of and were barred from. The way to it being blocked because of our disobedience and rebellion. The menorah, it, it was a centerpiece in the temple. And there, there were inscriptions. You can read the story of the seven years in which the temple was built. And you can see how uh, there was this rich, vivid imagery in the temple that was meant to evoke the sense of the garden, that paradisical place, Eden. Just as the temple was the place of God's unique presence experienced by the priest, Eden had been the place where God walked with Adam. Just as God had given promise of His presence there in Exodus, and just as it had remained powerful in Ephrathah, here we have this beautiful place that it involves, it has gold 
in its construction. You read it and you, you, you just, you're trying to imagine what this temple would have looked like. It has gold, it has um, onyx stone, which are mentioned specifically as having been present in the Garden of Eden. You can think of the cherubim. The cherubim which were over the Ark of the Covenant. And you, you can think of the imagery that was throughout of the cherubim. The cherubim assuming the function of guarding the tree of life when mankind is expelled from Eden. The Ark which contained the law in the Holy of Holies, echoed the tree of knowledge of good and evil. You can see, just as there's a river that flowed out from Eden, so in the future, there's words spoken in Revelation concerning a temple at the end, a river flows from that temple as well. And there was in Solomon's temple... A sea of water, a body of water, a large body of water that indicated the life that God gives. Water in which the priests would ceremonially cleanse themselves. Just as golden onyx were in the garden, they're used to decorate the sanctuaries and priestly garments. Just as the temple had um, various features of the garden, uh, just as the temple had various features concerning um, God's holiness, indicated amplifying and um, exhibiting God's holiness to, to mankind, the Garden of Eden also had the same. Ezekiel refers to Eden, the garden of God, the holy mountain of God. And he even speaks of it containing sanctuaries. So we have Eden, we have Exodus, we have Ephrathah, then we have this enshrinement in the temple, but the people continued to act as if they didn't care. God is with us. He was with us in Eden. He's made a way for us um, to, to be right with Him. He has promised that He would be with His people. He says, I will be with you and I will be your God and you will be my people. Just don't disobey my commands. And what did we do? We disobeyed God's commands. These people disobeyed God's commands. There's a temple that is built and it's powerful. It's amazing to see God's presence fill this temple. Not too long later, only a matter of centuries, the temple was destroyed. What was beautiful is now broken. Sounds like Eden. Eden destroyed. The temple destroyed. The temple could not fulfill our ultimate need. The temple could not ultimately bring what we needed. We, we, broken by law, broken by the realization that we are unable to keep the law, need something to fix our sin problem. 
We need God with us in an even more tangible way. The temple contained sacrifices on a daily basis. We need a once and for all sacrifice. God with us in Eden. God with us in Exodus. God with us in Ephrathah. God with us enshrined. Now let me tell you about God with us. Emmanuel. In Isaiah, there's a promise. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. In Isaiah 9, there's a celebration. To us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It speaks of how a descendant of David will reign as a forever king of a forever kingdom. There will be no end to his kingdom, we read. Emmanuel. We arrive at a cataclysmic moment in time, what the scriptures speak of as the fullness of time, when an angel appears to a woman and says, God is with you. And she is frightened and wonders, what is going on? What does this mean? The Holy Spirit will come upon you and you shall conceive and give birth to a child. You shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior. It means Deliverer, basically. It's um, the same Yeshua. The, the Hebrew is um, a, a derivative of Yehoshua, which is Joshua, right? Joshua, who brought the people into the Promised Land, but who could not keep people in God's promises. Jesus succeeds where Joshua fails. Jesus is God with us, Emmanuel. This was done to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew 1.22 says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This psalm that we've read is all about the Messiah. Yes, it tells us about the temple. It tells us about um, how this, this temple has been built. Remember, in, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. It speaks of the temple. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. But it harkens back to that promise that God made of a forever king of a forever kingdom. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away from the face of your anointed one, verse 10 says. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. This is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, God with us, Emmanuel.
crowned in glorious splendor, putting night away, mighty in His power, the One who's worthy of all our praise. Jesus spoke of Himself in a very clear way is Emmanuel. He did not use that terminology. He did not say, I am Emmanuel. He didn't say that, granted, that we have recorded anyway. But he gave seven declarative statements. Just as God said over the course of seven days, let there be, let there be, let there be, and there was. Just as he commanded Moses, do this, build this, build this, do this, and and Moses did. Just as Solomon was instructed in building the temple over the course of seven years, and, and that was completed, Jesus declares certain things concerning Himself, indicating that we need no one else, no one but Jesus, no one but Emmanuel. He said, I am the bread of life. Jesus alone can sustain us. Uh, we who are, are starving, needing His salvation, needing the bread of life. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. The original eternal source of light. We see God, first of all, He, he says, let there be light and there is light. Well, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He's the eternal light. The one who brightens up our darkness. I am the gate of the sheepfold, the only door to life for those who enter through Jesus. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am. Indicating and hearkening back to who God revealed Himself to be. The great I am. As He told Moses, I am that I am. God with us, Emmanuel. And we will reach the end. We're still in history. We're still in time and space. The technical word, the Greek word for it, is eschaton. God was with us. He is with us in Emmanuel. But there's a beautiful promise that we await. It's not just that we look back to the promise of Emmanuel. We're looking forward to the eschaton. God with us in the eschaton. God with us, dwelling with us forever and ever. Because the promise made to David has not yet been completed. There is still a full and final defeat of our adversary Satan to deal with. The serpent will be fully destroyed and cast into hell. And then we see a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the what? The dwelling place of God. The tabernacle. The temple. Eden. 
The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people. God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is God with us fully, finally, forever. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, the broken, shattered, confused, chaotic, sick, diseased nations that can find life only in Jesus. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And nights will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you. You've shown us panoramic history from the beginning to the end. From Eden to this eschaton, to from paradise to paradise. We failed, we've fallen, we've sinned. And yet you have made a way for us to be right with you through Jesus Christ, Emmanuel. Oh, Father, bless us and keep us. Make your face to shine upon us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.